my grandmother, a woman who lived uh, well well into her 80s. She died, as far as I am aware, without a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's, that's a woman who attended church sort of sporadically throughout her, her life. She heard the gospel. But as far as I am aware, that is a woman to the, the, to the end of her life, a woman who remained entirely unrepentant. You see what that means? It means that, uh, as far as I'm aware, my grandmother went to hell. Now, why mention that? We have to wake up from our slumber as Christians. Christianity is not about interest in meetings. Christianity is not about meeting interest in people. It isn't. And Christianity is not about collections. And it is not about singing choruses. Christianity is about a message of a death that provides life and life eternal. And we need to wake up from our slumber. Why? Well, hear this. Because the vast majority of the people that we meet and know they face the condemnation of God outside of Christ. Now, in recent weeks, we have um, seen Paul here embark on a really practical section of this letter. And it has been practical, hasn't it? I mean, we've seen instruction for wives and husbands and for kids and for, for slaves and masters. But now here, as he concludes that really practical section, what he does is he returns to addressing the whole of the, the congregation, right? So he is back to addressing the whole of the church in Colossae. And as he does this, clearly it is the urgency. I mean, it is the, the, the pressing nature of the Christian message that is on Paul's mind here. How the church of Jesus Christ must be reaching out to people who are lost. And people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And, and what he does in that section that you have got in front of you, what he does is he draws a line down the middle of it. Okay, so we're looking at, what did I say, verses 2 to 6. Well, there's two sections that you've got there. Two to four, if you're looking at it, in verses two to four, he deals with praying. And it's praying with an urgency, and it's praying in light of the gospel. And then in verses five to six, he moves from prayer, and he's dealing with behavior, living. And again, there's the urgency there. So I'll tell you what, since that's how Paul... That's how God has arranged the material. Let's look at it like that. So tonight, there will be two, and just two headings to our sermon. Okay, so I suggest with that said, that if you could have your Bibles open at these verses, Colossians chapter 4, 
let's, let's look at them. Let's consider firstly Christ-centered praying. Christ-centered praying. And I want to start with a question for you. Um, very simply, how is your prayer life? Just now, this point in, in your Christian walk, how is your prayer life? Are you, um, like many of us, if you like, like many other people, are you kind of struggling a little bit with your devotional life? Are you struggling to pray? How is your prayer life just now, this point in your life? How is it? Well, here, what we've got, what Paul does here is he shows us the how, the who, and the what of prayer. And, I, and listen to this, hear this, you know. If we grasp what Paul says in verses 2 to 4, it's going to change things. See, the struggle with our prayer lives, that, 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 that could go. If we grasp this tonight, if we bring this in, then it can help us and it can help us to pray. So what, what does he say? Okay, we want a health prayer life, don't we? What does he say? What is the how of prayer? Well, I'll tell you what, just notice the first two words of verse 2. Just have a look at the words of verse 2. What have you got? Paul says, devote yourselves. Devote yourselves to prayer. I think quite a few of you have got the ESV in front of you. What's the ESV got there? It's not devote yourself. I think it's continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, if you've been here over the last wee while, that's ringing bells, isn't it? Isn't it? Like, devote yourself. Like, we saw that in the book of Acts in the morning, didn't we? Like, remember what it said? Remember what it said about the church in the early days of, of Acts? It, it said that the, that the, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Do you remember that? So it's that sort of a fervency, it's that sort of commitment, it's that sort of devotion that Paul is calling for in your prayer life, my prayer life. Okay, that sort of enthusiasm for prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. But we should also notice the type of prayer that he's saying that we've got to be committed to. Because the word that is used there in verse 2 of prayer actually usually refers to what's called petitionary prayer. Do you see what that means? That what Paul is calling for here is for us to be committed and persevering in this week, asking God for things. You know, that we should be enthusiastic, that we should be dedicated to requesting from God, boldly, in the name of Christ, requesting spiritual blessing from God. So we have to be devoted to that this week, a petitionary prayer. What else does he say? Look, look how he ends verse 2. So we've seen that we have to be devoted. The end of verse 2, he returns to that. Come on, surely you're right. Okay, we've heard this before. He returns to a, a, a common theme all the way through Colossians because he says as well, not just be devoted, but be thankful in prayer. Do you see what that means? <laughs> that means that this week when we pray, our prayers aren't just to be full of petition. Our prayers this week have to be full of praise. And what is it that you and I should be thankful for in prayer? What is it? 
consider how I started the sermon. Consider what we have been saved from. Why should we be thankful to God in prayer this week? Well, because as Paul has already said to the Colossians, we have been rescued. We have been rescued in Christ from the dominion of darkness. That is why this week we pray, and we pray with with thankfulness. So you have got devotion, you've got thankfulness. But it is what sits in between those two things in verse 2 that I really want to focus on. Have have a wee look in verse 2. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful. And at that I can almost kind of picture my wee boy, you know, I can picture Colin, my five-year-old, with his hand in the air. You know, he's like, Dad, I thought we were supposed to close our eyes in prayer. How can we also at the same time be watchful? You know, what does it mean? Well, I'm pretty sure that you've all seen uh, the Channel 4 program Countdown. You've seen Countdown, if you not. Let's face it, not exactly the greatest program that's ever been uh, put together before, but I'm sure everybody knows Countdown. And you can picture what Countdown looks like. You've got those two contestants, and it's sort of dominated by that clock on the wall, isn't it? The clock that's rapidly sort of ticking down. Well, that is what it is that we have got here. Because see this word that Paul uses for being watchful. In Scripture, that word is used most frequently in regard to what? In regard to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider, let's go for Matthew 24. Jesus says there, he says, Be watchful, for you do not know on what day the Lord will come. So wait a minute, do you see what Paul is saying at this point in Colossians? He has just told them in chapter 3. Do you remember what he's just said? He said, Christ is returning. He says, Christ is coming back and you will appear with him in glory. You remember that? Now what is he saying? He's saying that reality of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that has to hit how you pray. That we don't just pray often, that we don't just pray with thankfulness, that we pray with a, a certain urgency. Why? Because time is short. People are lost. And Christ is coming back. That is how we pray. So we pray with devotion, thankfulness, watchfulness. The second question about prayer, though, is who uh, should we pray for? Now, I, I started this, I guess, asking you a question, didn't I? I asked you uh, that question that I've asked before. How's your prayer life? If it is tonight that it's true that you're struggling to pray and you're struggling devotionally, then you will know um, how quickly our prayers can become insular. Isn't that the case? Like if our devotional life is not going well, you know what happens. (laughs) It's like if we pray at all, then it's usually like first thing in the morning, maybe a quick verse of the Bible 
And then there's just a couple of quick words in prayer. If things are going not great in our spiritual life, and we're sort of like, Lord, eh, help me. You know, help me with this, or oh, please help me. It becomes very insular. Now, I tell you what, look at the first, the first words of verse 3. <coughs> Paul says, and pray for us. Pray for us. What we're seeing is that a healthy prayer life must be an outward-looking prayer life. We pray for other people. He says, and pray for us. That's obvious. There's something much more specific in that. Let me ask you this. Now, please put your thinking caps on with this. When Paul says, pray for us, who's the us? But Paul is saying to that congregation, writing to them and saying, please pray for us. Who is he talking about? Well, look what he goes on to say. He says, pray for us that God may open a door for our message. Then he says, pray for us that we may proclaim the mystery of Jesus Christ. Do you see what this is? Paul is asking for prayer for preachers. He is asking for prayer for, for, for ministers, for those who are called to handle the word and proclaim the word. And I have to stand in front of you because of that. And I have to ask you whether you do it. But you say, yeah, of course I do. Oh, I know what I mean. I mean, is this a concrete daily part of your devotional life? Praying for evangelists, ministers, missionaries, preachers. Is it? Because what I hope you see is how well placed our congregation is to really embrace what it is that Paul is talking about here. Like you've, you've heard me say this before countless times. But LCPC, you know, this we're sort of a multi-ethnic group of people, even if we're a relatively small congregation, you know, it's yada, yada, heard it before, Andy, you know, but we are, we're, we're from all over the globe, lots of people passing through London just for a few months, even for a few years. Wait a minute, do you see what that means for this? It means that for so many of us, we have another church, don't we? Like for a lot of people, we've got another congregation, another church that's kind of close to our hearts. A church that we are familiar with, isn't that the case? Do you see what that means? It means we might be a small group of people, but we know a lot of ministers. We know a lot of preachers. We know a lot of evangelists. We can really take this, what, what Scripture is saying here. We can really embrace this as a congregation. We can do this. And so, friends, I ask you, will you do this? To refresh your prayer life this week, will you not just pray more frequently? Will you not just pray more urgently? But will you pray for the preachers and for the uh, ministers that you know, this church and in other churches? And I guess that takes us on to the sort of quite neatly onto the third question. Because if we're going to be praying for ministers, wait a minute, we've seen the the how and the who. What are we supposed to pray for our ministers? What are we supposed to pray for our ministers? 
Well, I was reading uh, the story of a woman this week, and uh, this woman had been arrested and imprisoned in uh, Thailand. Um, she had made some pretty daft choices, and she sort of split up with her husband. And uh, somebody had approached her and asked whether she would smuggle heroin out of Thailand, I think it was. And she said, yes, that she would do that. And she was caught and she was arrested. Now, she went on to talk about the experience after that. She went on to talk about what it was like in a Thai jail. And unsurprisingly, I suppose, she said it was horrendous, you know. Like she just said, it was just indescribably bad. This this experience was uh, the worst experience of her life, being in that prison cell. It was horrendous. And friends, I want to just simply remind you of where Paul is when he's writing this letter to the Colossians. He's in a jail cell. I mean, he is in a man who is imprisoned as he's writing this, and get this. Yes, he asks for prayer here. Look at it. That a door would be opened. We're all expecting what sort of door you would, he would want open. But amazingly, he, he asks that they pray that not the door to his prison cell be opened. Look at the prayer that he wants. He, he, pray, he wants prayer that the door to the word of God would be opened. Isn't that incredible? But do you see what it means? It means that it is absolutely imperative that we as Christians, the people of God, pray for what? It is imperative that we pray for opportunities for our ministers and for our our preachers and for our evangelists, that we would pray for opportunities that they would be able to speak and be able to preach. That the We pray that God would open doors for our ministers, that God would open hearts for the word and that that word would go out with clarity. Friends, so I ask you again, are you struggling to pray? Is that a reality for you? If so, take this. This week, take these verses and come back to these verses. The how, the who, the the what of, of prayer. And let's pray this week. Come on. In light of what God has done, let's pray with that gratitude. And let's pray for our ministers and preachers. And most of all, let's pray with a bit of urgency that lost souls would be saved. Okay, so I said again, we'd split the sermon. So Paul's dealt with prayer. There's an urgency, what he says, how, how we pray for the lost here. But he moves on to pray about Christ-centered living. And here he shows us how, how he's, he's spoken about how we pray. Now he tells us how to behave with the lost. And what he does, verses 5 and 6, is kind of mentioned a couple of things. He shows us how to act with unbelievers, and he shows us what to say to unbelievers. So before I get into this, 
Do you see how important it is? Like, I know this is your Sunday night, and I know some of you are tired, and some of you got a miserable week ahead of you, maybe. But this isn't some sort of redundant aspect of theology that we're going to look at for for no more than 10 minutes here. This is how we act and speak with people who do not know Christ. It does not get any more important than this. So what does Paul say? How do we act? How do we speak to unbelievers? How do we act? Well, note this. Paul says that with people who aren't Christians, we should act and act, you ready for it? Act conscious of time. Now, someone said to me in, in conversation the other day, and it wasn't in the church, so don't be thinking, who was it that said this? It was, wasn't in the church. Somebody said to me, they said, with me, uh, what you see is what you get. You've heard that expression before. I think it was a bit of a boasted person was saying, you know, with me, what you see is what you get. Basically, the person, I think, was saying that they would not change how they act for anyone. You know, if they're in the presence of the queen or if they are in the presence of a child, it wasn't going to matter to them. You know, what you see is what you get. Now, look at verse 5. Paul seems to be counselling against that sort of behaviour. and Counselling against that sort of thinking with the unbeliever. Look what he says. It's not what you see is what you get. Paul is saying, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. That you and I, as Christians, have to be very, very careful about how we are acting and behaving with those who are lost. Very careful. Why? Because of the consequences. Because of what we are dealing with here. The the severity of all of this. But really look at what Paul adds to that in verse 5. He says, okay, he says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. But then he says, make the most of every opportunity. So the question is, how? In the way that we act towards unbelievers, how do we make the most of every opportunity. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, if you're of a certain vintage, and if you are uh, as old as I am, or older, uh, you will probably remember uh, about 10, 15 years ago, there was a, a fuel shortage in this country. And the whole country went sort of crazy for a few days. We were all under the illusion that petrol was going to run out. And so everyone sort of jumps in their cars and boosts to the, the nearest petrol station. And uh, there was, you know, the, the, there was queues for mile after mile after mile at the garage forecourts. Now, that is the sort of idea picture. That is the sort of language that Paul is using at this point. He is using language of panic buying. Do you see what he says when he says, make the most of opportunity? He is saying, hear this please, that just as our prayers for the lost should be affected by a knowledge of a lack of time, so our behavior towards those who are outside of Jesus Christ, our behavior should be affected by the fact that we don't have law. Our behavior 
towards those outside of Christ should be affected by the fact that they are dying. That we are dying. That time is ticking down. And I know it's your Sunday night. And I know it is very, very difficult sometimes to to sit through the sermon. But I'm asking you to do that this week. To really try and make the most of every opportunity with the people who are outside of Jesus Christ in the way that you behave. Now, can you picture the unbelievers that you will meet this week? Can you picture them? What are their needs and situations? You know, are, 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 are they lonely, perhaps? Can you act and show them love? Can you reach out to them? I mean, have they got kids? Are they maybe even struggling with kids? Can you act towards them by, by trying to seek to give them a break to help them with that situation? Are the unbelievers in your life showing you wickedness? Are they attacking you? Can, can you? Can you respond to that with, with forgiveness? Can you show them some sort of, of love? Friends, you see what we've got here? We're told we need to act wisely with outsiders. We need to make the most of every single opportunity. Why? Consider the start of the sermon. Consider the punishment for sin. We have to try to witness to people in the way that we act, in the way that we behave. And then, having shown how to act with believers, the last thing we see here is how we speak with unbelievers. So lastly, think about this. Paul says that with people who who aren't Christians, we should speak in an interesting way. And at that, the world cries in unison. All the irony of it, you know, that a free church minister would dare say, speak in an interesting way. But that is what Paul says here. And really, I think, again, this is very appropriate for our congregation because we have so many South Americans in this congregation, don't we? And the one thing that sort of strikes me time and time again about you South Americans is how much you love your salt and your food. I don't know if it's the same in in, in Peru or not, but it's certainly the same in Brazil. And uh, we had, uh, I don't know if you remember Carolini, uh, the Brazilian girl, we had her staying with us for about three months. No matter what we cooked for her, you know, no matter how much salt we put into it, we'd, we'd give her the food, you know, here you are. And she would take this, sort of this table salt and just stand there for like 40 minutes, pour egg salt. Well, it's maybe a slight exaggeration. Now, why do people, why do people do that? Why do people put salt? Why do you put salt into your food? Well, the Brazilians do it to spice things up a wee bit, don't they? You know, to, to add a bit of kick. No, to make the foods, our boring and bland British tucker, to make it a bit more interesting, right? Have a look at what is in front of you. What does Paul say about how you and I should speak to to non-Christians? Look at verse 6. 
our conversation is to be full of grace. Our, com- our conversation is to be, he says, seasoned with salt. I wonder, do you see what he's getting at? He has called us to act in a specific way with people who are lost. Now, what do we want to happen when we show love to someone who is not saved? What do you want to happen? You want them to ask you questions, don't you? And what Paul is saying here is that when they come back with questions, not only are we to be able to answer those questions, what Paul is saying here is that we are to be able to answer their questions, that we are supposed to be able to speak about Jesus Christ, and we are supposed to be able to do that with some sort of interest. That we are supposed to be able to speak about Jesus Christ in a captivating way. Not just with a sort of textbook answer and to say something vague about church. But we are supposed to be able to speak about Jesus Christ with enthusiasm, with joy, with interest. I ask you, can you do that? I ask you, are you ready to do that? If people this week ask you, what is it you believe? You seem like a nice guy. You show me love. What is it you believe? Can you talk about Christ in a way that is going to captivate them? Are you going to show them how enthusiastic you are that the gospel transforms and the gospel saves? Can you do that? Are you ready to do it? If not, guess what? It gives us something this week to pray about. I want to close with this. There's one word in verses 2 to 6 that is like a dagger through the heart, isn't it? I mean, scan over those, those words from verses 2 to 6. Is there not one word that, that jumps out every time? In some ways, it is a terrible word. Do you see what the word is? Surely it is the word outsider. Because you see, Paul's not writing to that whole congregation in Colossae and he's, he's, he's not just saying he's not just speaking about people who are outside the congregation he's speaking about people who are outside the kingdom of God he is writing about people who are outside salvation he is writing about people who will be outside the gates of heaven And so again, Christianity is not about interesting meetings. And it is not about meeting interesting people. It is not about that. And it is not about collections. And it is not about choruses. Christianity is about through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ coming inside to the covenant faithful, eternal love of God. So this week, let there be some urgency to our prayer lives and let there be some urgency to the way that we act that people might ask us the reason for the hope that we have and that you and I might be able to speak to them answer them and with salt tell them about a saviour of glory that we might tell them about a saviour of grace